0: Good morning, Veritas Church. This is probably my third year, maybe fourth, preaching from verses from Matthew from the Sermon on the Mount, and it's been a long journey, but it's been a good journey, and there's a lot of good content in this sermon and these set of verses shared by Jesus up on a hill. Telling God's law to God's people. Our verses this morning are taken from a section of the Sermon on the Mount described by many as the antitheses. And um, I've been advised to not use that word, but because it seems to imply that when Jesus, when these verses are talked about as the antitheses, they would actually be uh, perceived or recognized as. Jesus being against the law, and that's not the case at all in this case. Actually, it's it's, it's quite the opposite. Um, Jesus tells us earlier in Matthew how even the smallest detail of the law will not pass away. The two smallest uh, portions of punctuation in the Hebrew language, the jot and the tittle, were, are not to go away until all is fulfilled. So God's law according to Jesus, will remain until the heavens and the earth pass away. So God, Jesus is not arguing against the perpetuity of the law. What he's arguing actually against, what Jesus is against, what the anti and the antitheses actually means is Jesus is correcting the Pharisees' incorrect interpretations of the law. The Pharisees had taken God's law, which is good and holy and right, and watered it down to bring it down to a level through which they could perform. But in the antitheses, in these sections where there's five different sections, Jesus reinstitutes or retaliates, retaliates, reiterates the high standards that are set up in God's law. This morning we're gonna be focusing in upon the fifth antithesis, verses where we're commanded to extend mercy, forgiveness, and grace rather than responding in vengeance to those who bring upon us personal insult, lawsuits, the infringement of our liberty, or violation of our personal property rights. If you turn in the Bible with me right now, we're going to look at these verses again, um, these words that David shared so eloquently, words that express the patient, gracious, and long-suffering nature of Jesus our Lord. and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Let's pray. God, if you'd join, um, give me the power right now to be able to communicate your word clearly, to be able to proclaim your word accurately and with passion. God, most of all, may our minds be informed and may our hearts be transformed by the good news of your gospel that's intended and given for our good, but most of all given for your eternal glory. Amen. So this morning we're looking at a lot of verses that have to do with vengeance and tit for tat, returning evil for evil. And I think we all struggle with this. Um, Not long ago, maybe long ago, before COVID caused lots of restrictions regarding eating out in restaurants, my wife and I had a relaxing dinner at one of our favorite uh, fine dining establishments in, in Sacramento, uh, Dos Coyotes. <laughs> and um, after a very enjoyable burrito and um, a salad, you can guess who had which of those two items. Um, I thought a drive along Folsom Boulevard going home would be a nice way to kind of like end our, our time out at, at Dos Coyotes. And so um, we were going down Folsom and it narrows down from two lanes to one lane. And there was this big blue truck in the right-hand lane. And um, as I was coming along, that right-hand lane ended. And suddenly, the truck lurched into my lane. And um, I saw red. I I don't know what happened. I just saw red. And so the next thing I... I I might have actually done some kind of gesture out the window and and maybe said some things. And I don't remember exactly how it worked out. But the next thing I knew, there was a, a truck chasing my wife and I. Through Sacramento, and um, eventually cooler heads prevailed, and everybody calmed down. Um, but, but, um, but it was it was an unfortunate, um, embarrassing event, actually. And I don't know if any of you can relate to this. And I would suppose that I'm not the only one that struggles with with road raid vengeance. But, but um, each of us has different things in life, different things that cause offense, that push our buttons, that that cause us to react irrationally, that causes just something rises up out of our hearts and the next thing we know we're doing things that we would, I'm a pastor, you know. I'm, I'm a dad, I'm, I'm a husband and here we're gonna get in a fight with some very big guy in a, in a pickup truck and, <laughs> and I'm gonna lose, right? So for some of us it's verbal insults that set us off, for others it's government regulations or restrictions that drive us crazy. Um, For some of us in urban areas, it might be encounters with panhandlers and and the homeless. But in all these areas, the the impulse to to retaliate, to return evil for evil, to cling to our possessions is is a natural human response to insult and offense. And in God's word this morning, we're going to see what God would actually have each of us to do in each of these situations when we're responding or when we're tempted to respond With vengeance. Um, Before we look specifically at this morning's verses, I'd um, like us to look at two more things. Um, We want to look at the root cause of vengeance, how how God identifies the root cause of this uh, irrational impulse that seems to come up out of nowhere, as well as God's solution for this vengeance. And while normally here at Veritas, we like to stick strictly to the verses that we're looking at, in this case, these verses come from the larger context of Scripture, and I think they accurately apply to the verses that we're looking at and do relate. So I'm not breaking any rules here scripturally. These, these verses do apply. Um, first, we want to look at the root cause of vengeance, and then we'll look at the solution. Um, the root cause of vengeance is basically at its root too high of a view of ourselves. Our egos are fragile, even though we have... Um, trophies for everybody these days, and we've got celebrations annually, monthly, or weekly for each of our different um, preoccupations. Our egos are fragile and demand immediate payback when offended. God also has a prescription for this fragile ego and a too-high view of ourselves, and um, the majority of what we'll be looking at this morning is what to do um, on what God would have us to do in response to offense, but the basic prescription regarding uh, how to think about these offenses, how to actually have the Christian mindset when we're offended is covered both in the Beatitudes and also in Romans 5. For those of you that were here two years ago, um, I covered the Beatitudes The root heart of the Beatitudes is the description of God telling us what the heart of his believers and followers really are. In the Beatitudes, Jesus talks about the disciples that are blessed because they possess poverty of spirit. These same disciples repent, they mourn, they mourn over the sins in their lives. They're characterized by people that have seen the shallowness of their own selfish needs and desires and abilities, and have repentingly turned those over to God and looked to Christ for the ability to die to those selfish desires and to live for Christ and to serve others. Likewise, in Romans 5, Paul provides motivation to crucify self, and sinful vengeance when he proclaims, God shows his love for us, then while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. Taken together, the attitude of the disciples and the Beatitudes, that humble attitude, that repentant attitude, that attitude of people that have seen the nature of their own sinful, shallow hearts and look to God for fulfillment, together with Romans 5, talking about God's love for us while we were still sinners, how Christ died for us while we were sinners. Taken together, those verses motivate us to extend similar grace and mercy unto others. And we've seen how God has been gracious to us when we were still rebellious against him. We're motivated, aren't we, as Christians, to extend that same grace and mercy to others. So as we dig in or dive in this morning to these verses, um, for those of you that are taking notes, and I know my wife is one of those, get out your pen. There's four main points that can be taken from these verses today, and they are as follows. And these are actually actions that I've extracted out of these verses. When insulted, we must willingly offer the other cheek. When sued, we must graciously offer our cloak as well as our tunic. When conscripted, we must willingly go the second mile and we must give to those who beg and not refuse those who borrow. So we're talking about when we're insulted, sued, redirected, and giving. And in each of these situations, we're turning the other cheek, we're giving our coat as well as our undershirt, we're going a second mile, we're not refusing that those who borrow. In each of these situations we see, we're giving to those that insult us. If we look first now at uh, Matthew chapter five, verses 38 and 39, we see where we're directed to turn the other cheek when insulted. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. In these days, um, a slap to the cheek wasn't so much a slap to the right cheek, wasn't so much considered to be a physical assault or a violent attack so much so as it was considered to be that of an insult. It was the grossest insult of that time. And so it, this should not be interpreted offhand as teaching us that, uh, that physical punishment is actually an okay thing. The, the broader term here, the broader concept, that of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth that Jesus is correcting. Let me back up just a bit. Jesus, well, in general, in all these antitheses, what Jesus is doing is taking what the Pharisees were teaching, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which in this case is totally true. In Leviticus and in Exodus, the Bible does say, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But what Jesus here is corrects that teaching where it was taken in an incorrect manner. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was originally intended to be a restraint for the courts regarding sentencing and judgment. So uh, it wouldn't be fair to sentence somebody, let's say, uh, you knock out my tooth. It wouldn't be fair as part of the sentencing for that crime, we go to trial. Wouldn't be fair for the judge to say, well. We're going to take out your eye for removing Greg's tooth. That would not be that would not be a fair thing. So at that time, the basic concept for sentencing was you remove an eye, an eye is taken in return. You remove a tooth, only a tooth is taken in return. So the intent of the original law was to limit um, uh, it was to provide restraint, let's say, for Judicial sentencing and that was the the intent was to avoid escalation of of violence and so that uh, maybe I was the friend of the judge and so Patrick knocked out my tooth and the judge would have Patrick's eye taken out Um, That that really wouldn't be fair. So the intent of this law was good it was to cause a balance between the crime and the, the, the payback penalty however in this case the Pharisees at that time had lowered the standard of God's law and basically not so much even lowered it as actually turned an interpretation of what was good in God's law to actually being good for those that wanted to seek vengeance. Remember earlier how I talked about vengeance is that natural reaction. Somebody insults me in some way and my fragile ego causes me to just go off, fly off the handle and want to give back to them what they gave to me. And even worse than that, it tends to make me want to do more to them than what it caused to me. And so what God had originally meant as a restraint for the courts in sentencing, the people took as license as a way to justify their own payback for a crime. So there was no need for me, let's say we're outside and, and, and um, and you happened to do something wrong to me, you hit me in the face or something else. There was no right. I had no no justification necessarily to strike you back in the same way, to provide that vengeance. There was no need for me to pay back somebody that cut me off with their truck in a similar way. But at that time, the people had actually taken that eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and applied that to personal situations, that which was intended only for sentencing. So, when the gentleman in the truck cut me off, um, the pharisaical way of taking that would be, well, you cut me off, therefore, I'm going to cut you off as well. and maybe one, once a bit, a bit quicker and a bit more sharply. And we've seen this on the freeway, right? We've seen these, this escalation of violence where you did this to me, well, I'm gonna pay this back to you and raise it one more. And that's what had happened in this, in this case. And Jesus' solution for that is rather disarming because, as we see in our notes here, that let me find the place. Yes. Ah. The verse. Yes. Jesus' prescription here is rather disarming. Do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him, the other, also. Jesus tells us in this case, when somebody does something wrong to you, Christian, because his audience is Christians, when somebody does something wrong to you, insulting to you, that causes you to see red and have rage, what I want you to do is not only not strike back, not only keep it in, and restrain yourself from doing anything at all, but actually, out of grace and love and mercy, give that person the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they really didn't mean to cut you off. Maybe they've got a bumper sticker on their car that says, relax, it's only a lane change. We're to extend grace and mercy and restraint and actually give people the opportunity for the second chance rather than strike out in hope. As Christians, we're called to the high standard of living like Jesus, and as Jesus responded to insult with long-suffering, forgiveness, and grace, we also find hope that God promises to sanctify Christian followers and give us the ability to develop that same character and maturity of response over time as well, too by God's grace, we have the ability through God's Holy Spirit changing us to be, able to, experience, to be able to exhibit these same characteristics as well too. So, not only does Jesus tell us not to strike back when assaulted, in verse 40, the bar is raised a little higher. I summarized verse 40 earlier, when sued, we must generously offer our cloak as well as our tunic. And that specific verse says, And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Jesus' requirements here was talking about, he's talking about a lawsuit. And um, these requirements, this message, this instruction to refrain from, uh, to actually be generous in the event of a lawsuit is just as difficult and maybe more difficult as refraining from reacting quickly when insulted. Once again, we see the need to die to self, to die to self-esteem, to die to our rights, even when we've got legal rights to pursue them. In this day and age, uh, it was legal and okay. Let's say I borrowed some money from one of you And I had trouble paying it back, and this is 2,000 years ago. It was um, right and just in those days for me to give you my T-shirt as a down payment or as proof that I was going to stick around and pay that debt back. It was not legal, however, for you to claim my jacket or my coat. For to lose your jacket or your coat in those days was, um, it would actually... Raise the possibility of you dying because due to exposure of the elements. So the law gave those under lawsuit or the law gave those that were in trouble regarding payment of debt the right to be able to keep that outer garment or to keep that cloak. But in this case we see Jesus saying, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak or your outer garment or your jacket as well. This person being sued had the full legal right to keep that jacket. And here Jesus is saying, nope, give it up as well. So we see the same principle here as in the last example. Jesus is asking Christians to have a radically unselfish attitude towards our rights and our property. Even when we've got a legal right to those rights and property, and that we should exhibit a radically forgiving attitude towards others. The bar is raised a bit higher in verse 41. Not only did Jesus tell us in verse 39 not to strike back when insulted, not only did Jesus tell us not to, not only did Jesus tell us to surrender our legitimate rights to clothing in verse 40. In verse 41, the bar is raised yet a bit higher. The summary version of verse 41, when conscripted, oh, yep, we must willingly go the second mile. Conscripted is a uh, 25 cent word for when taken captive legally by Roman rulers that had the right back in that day and age to tell you to help carry their package. Um, conscription basically gave them the legal authority to make you go one mile. Back in those days, as you might remember, the Romans ruled and had were occupying uh, Jerusalem and the Jews naturally uh, didn't like that. They hated that. And the Romans had the ability to tell the both the Christians and the Jews, and the Jewish Christians as well, what to do and where to go. And as you might imagine, they resented that greatly as well. There's probably parallels to our day and age today, right? But um, here, let's look at Jesus' attitude. If anyone forces you to go one mile, then go with him two miles. So once again, we're seeing Jesus tell them, even though they have a right to force you to go one mile, I want you to lay down your personal desire to run away when that first mile is done, but to go with that Roman soldier and carry his package two miles. Again, in this same way, Jesus is directing his disciples back then, and he's directing you and I here today to die to our own selfish agenda and to sacrificially serve others even those that are despised occupying governmental authorities. The bar gets raised one more step in verse 42. Not only did Jesus tell his disciples not to strike back when insulted, not only did Jesus tell us to surrender our clothing when sued, not only did Jesus tell us to respond properly and, and graciously to governmental claims on personal liberty. But in verse 42, Jesus tells, them, tells us, I can't deflect this, that we must give to those who beg nor refuse those who borrow. Verse 42 reads, Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who who would borrow from you. We should actively seek to help those that are truly needy and forced to beg. This verse raises a whole bunch of questions. Um, wow, if I took this literally, um, <laughs> I'd, have, I'd have nothing left. And if we all took this literally, we'd end up with probably two groups in our population. We would have people that give, that are living in poverty and destitute, and, and people that... Um, don't do anything at all, and um, just just collect uh, possessions from others. Um, and so, like the other uh, uh, antitheses, these are not intended to be taken literally, and must not be um, taken out of context with the with the rest of the of the Bible. The Greek verb here on to give indicates more of a single act than a repetition. Rep- a repetitive act. Um, following this verse literally again would be self-defeating. We'd end up with a lot of poverty. Um, but the principle still stands, doesn't it? The principle still stands. What Jesus is, is, is driving at here is that the needs of the poor should be as important, oh wait, maybe not. The needs of the poor should actually be considered by Christians to be more important than our own. Jesus is saying here, Christians should exhibit a radically unselfish concern for ourselves, and a radically forgiven, forgiving and generous attitude towards the unsaved and towards sinners and towards those that would cut us off and yell at us and, and whatever else they do to raise our insult. Well, this is shorter than I thought. I went quicker than I thought, but the closing application drives a lot of these key points home. In closing, I hope you've seen the main consistent point all the way through these verses. According to Jesus, not according to Greg, according to Jesus, according to the Bible, we should die to our own needs and seek to serve others, even when treated with insult, Contempt, lawsuits, the loss of personal liberty, and the loss of our uh, financial resources. Now, the question would be this, I don't know about you, but I, I read these demands and I go, well, uh, I can get about 60% there, 50, 70% there maybe, but this bar is too high, this standard is too high. Do I really, myself, can I see myself not returning an insult with an insult? Obviously, I've got work to do in that area. Could I really not, could I really turn over my cloak as well as my undershirt to somebody that's suing me? Could I really avoid pursuing a lawsuit where I had legal just right to claims? Could I really lay down my, my personal agendas to governments that want to redirect me in certain ways? Could I actually serve the government with, with a proper and upright heart? Could I, could I give and consider the, the needs of the, of the poor and the needy Actually higher than my own needs, do I, do, I, do I wrestle with that when I go to make that next purchase? do I, do I think, do I consider, do I weigh out as a Christian, how my personal desires and needs and my family's needs and desires balance out with the needs of the poor? Th- this bar is this bar is extremely, extremely high, and it, 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 it cuts to the quick. How can we as Christians, how can we as Christians put, really, honestly, put the good of others before our own personal desires? What, what power, what hope, what way is there for any of us who feel mastered by our own personal desires to possibly progress in this manner at all? What way is there out of this addiction to, to self, self-desires and, and, and self-possessions? I began this morning with a proposition drawn from the Beatitudes, and from Romans 5. And I think that proposition serves well to summarize and illustrate the hope that we have and the ability that God gives us to um, come out from bondage to such a, a, um, to an unselfish, bondage to a selfish and unsacrificial life. Again, probably the best verse that sums this up is Romans 5:8 where the apostle Paul tells us tells Christians God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners Christ died for us so there's both condemnation and there's hope for all of us in those ver- in that verse in that simple verse God shows his love for us then and while we were still sinners Christ died for us there's condemnation as we understand that since the beginning of time, since the fall in the Garden of Eden, the natural state of mankind, the natural state of unsaved mankind, is spiritual death and a mind of total rebellion and rejection and anger against our holy God. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But there's also hope, This hope for two parties. There's hope for non-Christians because there's hope as you begin to understand your natural condition, that of being spiritually dead, that of being a spiritually dead sinner, that God has a promised provision, spiritual life, and there's God's solution provided to reach that spiritual life, repentance, and turning from your sins and placing your faith in Christ. While we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. But for the Christian, for those of us who have put our hope and our trust in Christ, for those of us that are forgiven through Christ's death on the cross, there's even greater hope. There's even greater hope to overcoming this this bondage or this slavery to the taskmaster of self. There's hope as we better understand that our God is not only just and requires punishment for sin, but that our God is also loving, gracious, and long-suffering towards rebellious sinners. While you and I were at war with God, at anger, angry at God, at enmity with God, wanting nothing whatsoever to do with this God, Christ died for us. Jason shared this a few weeks ago and and communicated it very eloquently that God gave, you think about your son, right? I love my son, wouldn't want to give him up for anything, but God gave his son that he loved way more than any of us love our children, and he gave his son up for us on the cross when we were still yet sinners and rebellious against God. Maybe you might die yourself for somebody that you think is good, that's a friend, but surely you would never consider giving up your son for somebody that was rebellious. But that's what God did, and that's, that's our hope. While God is just and requires punishment for sin, our God is gracious and long-suffering and offers a path to reconciliation with God through Jesus. Well, how does this connect back to that struggle that I have with that with my inability to, to die to myself, with that with my inability to be able to serve others? Well, I would offer up that as Christians begin to fully, more fully understand and grasp God's heart towards sinners. God's heart towards those that are insulting. God's heart towards those that hate him. As we see how Jesus responded to our rejection and our rebellion with long suffering and grace. How can we not respond to the unsaved world with such with a similar long suffering and grace? My prayer this morning, my hope this morning, and I hope all of our hope this morning, is that God would give each of us a greater appreciation, a greater in-depth understanding, a a greater grasp of the grace and the mercy that God has for both the saved and the unsaved. And that as we grasp and understand and wrestle with and realize how deep the Father's love is for us, but not only us, for the unsaved, that our hearts should be transformed and that we would want to and willingly, as forgiven sinners, forgive others, even those that insult us and treat us unjustly. Finally, for the Christians, there's one more tool that we have in our toolbox. There's the ability to pray to God to have him transform our heart. God has promised to us in his word that he will conform us to his Holy Spirit. There's this concept called sanctification, and sanctification is not an immediate work, but rather a long-term work. We're saved, and we're still a mess. And then we're saved for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and we're still a mess, but we're less of a mess. We're less of a mess because God is continually refining us and conforming us to the image of his son. And we have the ability to pray to the Holy Spirit that that God would conform us more completely and more fully to his image. And through that process, we can pray and ask and then have hope that we would be able to love ourselves less, love others more, and not respond in vengeance, but rather respond in long-suffering grace, mercy, and love towards those that cause us grief in this world. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the wisdom found in your word. We thank you that how out of your grace and your mercy that you saw fit to save us in spite of our sin and our rebelliousness and our anger against you. God, we thank you for teaching us in your word how in a similar way you expect us to love others who are difficult, those who insult, offend, challenge, and reject us. Finally, God, thank you for teaching us in your word how you're changing our hearts to die to our own personal selfish desires, and to live not only for our own benefit, but for your glory as well. God, may we indeed be transformed by your Holy Spirit to reflect you more completely. When others see us, we can only pray that they would see you. When others see our attitude and our action towards others that, that are difficult, may they see your compassion long-suffering, grace, and mercy. And may this all be for our good, but most of all, God, may this be to your glory, amen. Each Sunday, following the sermon, we take communion together, and we do this in obedience to our Lord Jesus, and in remembrance of what he accomplished for us through his death on the cross. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 36, read as follows. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given it, he broke it. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So remembering and proclaiming the Lord's sacrificial death for us this morning. You're invited to join with us in communion if, a few bullet points here, you're a baptized believer, if you have confessed your sin and placed your trust in, for salvation in the work of Jesus, and if you are a part of a local church, this or another that preaches faithfully the same gospel you have had heard here today. We'll have leaders up front who will, bring, who will uh, serve you communion, and I believe we're coming up this aisle and this aisle, and then returning back through the side aisles. And when we've all received the elements, we will uh, eat the bread and drink the juice together. Let's pray in advance of communion. Thank you, God, for your new covenant, a covenant that fulfills the old, a covenant that, of grace and mercy, where our debts are paid by your perfect works, death, and resurrection. Thank you, God, for imputing your perfect righteousness to us by faith and reconciling us unto God. Amen.